Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. All right, let's go to um, Matthew 21. Uh, Kiki stole my message this morning, so let's say a word of prayer and let's go home. Just kidding. Don't get mad. Uh, today is about proclaiming Jesus as king. And we don't, we don't live in a monarchy, I don't, I don't think. Um, monarchy means one ruler. And the closest thing we know to royalty is the British royal family. And even there, it's more ceremonial than it is actual. Uh, nevertheless, if we haven't grown too cynical, we can probably relate to people attaching their hopes to leaders. Uh, I remember as a little boy, you know, being excited in the election when our side won. I thought, oh, that's good things, and being so devastated and fearful of what would happen if the other side won. And I'm not going to tell you which side uh, is which, but uh, you know that there is an attachment of hope that goes along with uh, different kinds of leaders. But Jesus is different from what many people expected, and he's better. He's better than what many people expected, but they didn't know it, and they would have to endure uh, a moment or a, a, a period, a season of misunderstanding in order to see the fruit of what he's really about. And I think that's probably true in our lives as well, is that there are sometimes when we might feel a little bit disappointed in the way that uh, we've interacted with Jesus or, or certain things have happened with God. And my contention is this morning that we have in a a micro sampling here, something that happens to all of us in which we have, to wait, uh, we have to wait on the purposes of God to be fulfilled. And if we will, and if we do, we'll find that he's far better than we've expected. Amen. Anybody found that to be true in kind of a, a scenario or a season in your life that uh, you thought it was one thing and God delivered in a different way and it was far better? I think that's probably uh, true of everyone's experience who's walked with God for a certain amount of time. And so he's better. He deals with the most, uh, the root of the problem, while many people who were before him and many people who came after him would like to deal with the symptoms and cause them to go away. He, uh, he leads to, uh, he heads right to the heart of the issue, and he takes care of what the real problem is. People welcomed him as king. They did, and they worshiped him, uh, or they worshiped God for sending him, even if we can't say directly that all who were there worshipped him. But they, they didn't really understand him. And I want to suggest as we, we look at what happens here that there is the possibility of doing the right thing and having the wrong ideas. Are you with me on that? So um, do you realize that all of us do this already? That we don't have, none of us have a perfect understanding of what God is like. Anybody be willing to admit that? Okay. We're still like working on it. We're still growing. We're, st- we're still learning. Uh, I'm not saying that everybody has wrong conceptions, but I would just su- suggest that we have incomplete understanding of what God's like, and yet we worship him, right? We worship him sometimes better than we know, better than we realize. We're, we're singing, you know, God, you're my healer, and we might, you know, we might be sick in our body at that moment, you know, or, uh, and, and that's not necessarily a breakdown in knowledge, um, and we, we might be praising him in the middle of a trial, knowing that he's the deliverer and he's the answer. And, 
and yet not knowing where that answer is going to come from. We might even have a little fear even as we worship him. Uh, I wonder today if you would admit with me that God is honored by uh, us doing the right thing even if we don't have complete understanding. Would you agree with that? That he's still honored because we're, we're lifting up his name. We're proclaiming him uh, better than what uh, we, we know. Okay, so, and Scripture helps us with that. Thank God for his revelation that at times it tells us how to worship. It even at times tells us what to say, and worship is a thing that we grow into. Okay, so as we look through the Psalms, sometimes we read those, and we might not feel the strong conviction of what that Psalm is saying at this particular moment, but it gives us words that we will grow into if we continue to worship the Lord. I want to suggest here as we look at this passage some things about what Jesus is like. Let's read verses 1, and we'll go through verse 14, although a lot of people like to take uh, a larger portion or cut it off at verse uh, 11 for the understanding of this passage. Let's just read through uh, verse 13, actually. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and at one at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey on, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks upon them, on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him, uh, crowds uh, that went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, "Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven!" When Jesus entered. Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, what is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house shall be called or will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Okay, so... Here we have a, an expectation that uh, these people have as Jesus approaches. I think there are probably different categories of people that are in this crowd. There are some who are dedicated followers. They don't fully understand. Even his closest followers didn't fully understand what Jesus was about. But they were loyal to the end, uh, with the exception of the night that Jesus goes to the cross, you understand. Strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter. Uh, but they're they're loyal to Jesus, and then you have people that are in the I don't know category. They they're hearing good things. They know about Lazarus being raised from the dead. They're they're hearing uh, about the miracles that have accompanied Jesus just prior to raising Lazarus, or just following the raising of Lazarus is uh, Bartimaeus. The story of Bartimaeus on the road uh, between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me, and everybody wants to shut him up, and Jesus goes and restores his sight. So these kind of miracles kind of are, have an echo that precedes him into Jerusalem. And so people, uh, there are some people that are there that are not in allegiance with Jesus. They're, they're following the noise. They're following the hype. Okay, 
Then there's a third category of people, and that's the the opposition, the critics of Jesus. And they stand around criticizing everybody who worships. And can I suggest to you that we always find these three categories of people? We find them today, that there are those that are loyal followers. They're not necessarily perfect followers, but they're loyal followers. Are you one of those? Okay. And then there's people that are there because of the noise. They're there because of the buzz and the, the hype that may be surrounding that. They sometimes find their ways into churches and they, they like to be around the hype. They're not true followers of Jesus, but they want to see what the buzz is about. And so they stand off in terms of allegiance, but they'll go along as long as it's exciting. The moment it costs them something, they're ready to cut and run. Okay, We see these same people who were following Jesus and shouting, where were they? I'm not suggesting that they're in the crowd that shouted, crucify him. I don't know that they were there. But at least we have to ask the question, where were they? Why were they not in Jesus' corner? Why were they not standing up for him when the time came for him to be crucified? And then we have the critics. Somebody said, uh, this is a, our Bible college president used to say, you'll either worship God or you'll criticize those who do. You'll either worship God or you'll criticize those who do. And his example was when David comes dancing into the city with the Ark of the Covenant following. He's dancing with all of his might before the Lord. And, of course, he's in his... Uh, he's stripped off his outer robe, and he's in his uh, more airy undergarments, if you know what I mean. And uh, Michael, his wife, Saul's daughter, looks down. She looks down. That's a figure of speech for us, to look down upon somebody. She looks down upon David, and she says to him, you're supposed to be the king. How can you be that undignified? And he says, I will become even more undignified than this, as for you. And then he uh, says some choice things about her. But uh, here we have people that are worshiping, and we have the critic that are standing off saying, we need to shut this down. We need to get people who are saying these things about Jesus to stop saying them about Jesus because they're sending the wrong kind of message. So you have these three gathered around, and I, I would suggest to you that no matter what category people found themselves in that day, Jesus was the only one that really knew what he was trying to accomplish. A lot of other people, they had some ideas, some had some expectations, some uh, projected their own expectations and desires upon Jesus, rather than taking him for what he is. And what we find out in this passage is uh, four things about Jesus, and then we'll talk about some application. But the first thing is that he was a humble king. He is. I'm going to put that in present tense. He not was a humble king. He still is a humble king. Okay, look at uh, verses 1 through 7 here, and it tells us the story a little more abbreviated than Mark. Normally, Mark is a briefer gospel. He doesn't even take time for really solid English conjunctions. Uh, He just uses the word and to start a new verse almost every time. But uh, in this case, Matthew's is a little bit shorter, and he talks about how they acquired the donkey and its colt. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus didn't ride both of them at the same time. Are you with me? He rode the colt. But the mother had to be along to comfort the colt. This was a, a, new, uh, a new donkey, old enough to ride, not old enough to be away from its mom. And this is Jesus taking that initial trek on this donkey. And it's, uh, it says something about this. He, goes, he says there, untie these and bring them. Verse 2, if anyone says anything, just say the Lord needs them. And so this took place. 
to, to fulfill a prophecy, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle. Gentle and humble are words that are interchangeable and have a lot of overlap. Gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed, and they brought the donkey, and they placed their cloaks on, on them for Jesus to sit upon. So he rode on a, a donkey's colt. That doesn't sound particularly edifying to us today, if you're wondering about a practical application to that. Um, there's no uh, suggestion here today that we need to, if we're going to be spiritual, we need to ride donkeys or colts of donkeys. But what this is telling us is something about the nature of Jesus, what he's like that he rode in on a donkey. You remember that David, and, and at, a, at, at that it was a borrowed donkey. It's not even Jesus' donkey. So that brings the humility down a little bit even more. It's not like he even owns this. This is borrowed. Um, you remember that David was a man of war, right? Remember, he's the kind of commando that he wants to marry the king's daughter, and the daughter says, this is the price. <laughs> remember the price? 200 foreskins of the Philistines. And David's, oh, no problem, and uh, comes back with uh, delivery. Anyway, that's just an example. He kills Goliath. He's a man who has led Israel in victory. And then uh, he has a son uh, who is to follow him as king, and his name's Solomon. And Solomon was uh, a man of peace. Even the name Solomon is derived from peace, okay, shalom, right? So he's a, a prince of peace. And so when David is on his deathbed and he's getting ready to pass the throne to one son, we have another son that tries to usurp the throne. But David says, no, take Solomon in First Kings chapter 1, verse 33. Take your Lord's servant and uh, with you and have Solomon, my son, mount on a mule and take him down to Gihon. Okay, so this is not a war horse. This is something like a donkey, okay? So this is not the prestigious thing that you fight battles with. This is something that's part of the everyday life. And so what David is saying is Solomon is a king of peace. I've been a king of war. Solomon is going to be a king of peace. Okay? And it, it's a, a way of demonstrating humility. So this is defining for us what kind of king Jesus is. He's a humble king who comes peacefully, not a warrior in the traditional sense or a revolutionary in the traditional sense. He is revolutionary, but not in the way that people had expected. Jesus here is doing something different. He's doing something deliberate. Okay? Uh, this is no mistake. He's like, do you guys have any white horses? No, we don't have any white horses. Uh, well, do you have any black horses? We don't have any black horses. Uh, gray? Do you have an old gray mare that I can ride? No, none of that. Uh, what do you have? We have a donkey. Now, this isn't like that. This is Jesus saying, I know where there's a colt that's never been ridden before, a donkey's colt, not prestigious uh, horse colt. This is a donkey colt. I know where there's one. Go and get that for me. I'm going to ride in on that. And so he's making a particular statement, a deliberate statement. He's not like many of the liberator types who love to get rid of the Gentiles and force their way in and come as a, in a kind of formal triumph. This is a humble thing. In fact, some even have a problem with the idea that it's called a triumphal entry because this is almost a triumphal because he's coming in the eyes of the world what, in, in what will look like a defeat. 
but he's coming in a, as a humble king. The second thing I'd, I'd like to point out here in verses 4 through 9 is that he's a hoped-for king. He's a humble king. That, that describes what he's like. But also, he's a hoped-for king. And so it says in verse 4 here that this took place, this riding in on the, the donkey's colt, this took place to fulfill what was spoken about through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt and the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and they did what Jesus said and they brought that and they laid the cloak down. And you find that people uh, went ahead and they waved their palm branches and they laid their cloaks down and they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So here we have anticipation coming. And it first comes because the prophecies declared that Jesus would come in this particular way. So he was a leader that's hoped for. He's a leader that was prophesied. We see it even as far back as Genesis 49, verse 10 and 11. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Let me ask you, which tribe of Israel does Jesus hail from? It's Judah, right? Uh, He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And David was a descendant of Judah. And so this is the particular tribe. And so back when, a long time ago, uh, almost uh, two millennia before Christ's coming, the lineage of Jesus already is set in place by the sovereignty of God. As Jacob blessed his son, Judah, he says the scepter will not depart. What is a scepter for? Who holds a scepter? The king holds the scepter, and the scepter is a symbol of ruling and power. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet until he uh, to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of nations shall be his. We want to pause here and say, wait a minute, this is, this is New Testament stuff. But no, this is Old Testament stuff. This is at the very beginning of the story that the scepter will remain in Judah. And the one who will come to claim it, the nations will be in obedience to him. I mean, that's powerful prophecy, isn't it? It's looking forward. It's looking down the telescope of history to one who will come at a future moment. And listen to this. It goes on to say, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. Now, this is prophecy here, and I think probably many thought what he was going to do was he was going to destroy the nations, and it was going to be a bloodbath, and he was going to be the victorious ruler. But I wonder if what's intended here is not the the great blood being a symbolized of his own blood. You understand what I mean? Being, him being stained because he sacrificed his life and he poured out his blood for us. So all of this way back in Genesis is prophesying Jesus even down to a detail of a donkey and its colt. Do you see that? So all of this is moving forward and moving the story forward. Zechariah 9 talks about the humble king restoring Israel and bringing peace to the ends of the earth. And it talks about that, the ends of the earth, and from sea to sea. I think there's something powerful to be said for that. So he was hoped for, not only by Scripture, but that Scripture propelled hope in the hearts of God's people. He was hoped for by the people of God. But what 
made Jesus different was that he was going to really deliver a kind of lasting effect. I, I don't know if you've, you've known this, but at Jesus' time, there were already many Messiah types that were around. And in the previous generations, there had been some uh, liberators who, had, who were raised up. Uh, I'm thinking of the Maccabeans, how they were raised up and they delivered a kind of political independence and kicked the Gentiles out. And everybody was looking for that kind of leader again. And so the expectation was a leader that will kick out all of the Gentile oppressors. Let's get the Gentile oppressors out. But this liberator uh, will kick out the one enemy for uh, only uh, for a different kind. Oh, excuse me. That, that kind of liberator kicks out one enemy only for a different kind of return. So think about this cycle through Scripture. Uh, the Israelites were oppressed by the Philistines, and if not the Philistines, then it was the Midianites, and if not the Midianites, it was the Egyptians, if not the Egyptians, the Assyrians, if not the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and if not the Babylonians, the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and we begin to ask the question, how many liberators do we need to continue to kick foreign oppressors out? Because one generation rises up, and they kick one out, and then a new one comes in. When will the madness stop? And so, what can be done? This is a liberator who gets to the heart of the oppression, and he causes it all to cease. Remember, we sing that song at Christmas time. In his name, all oppression will cease. And it will. And you might say there's still oppression in the world, and there is, but it's on its way out. He breaks the back of death. He conquests sin and selfishness. He turns people from haters into lovers, and he defeats the one who stands behind all oppression. That's what Jesus can do. No human could do that apart from Jesus, the Son of God. Come on, that's exciting. Uh, I don't know if you need to tell yourself that, but I'm telling myself that's pretty exciting that he's done what no one else can do. All oppression is not gone at the moment, but it's on its way out, and the seed has been sown that will lead to its deliverance, to our deliverance. This is what everyone really hopes for but doesn't realize it because... They have their eyes on the immediate problem. For Jesus' contemporaries, what they're thinking is, great, we have a Messiah. Uh, we've had all of those previous oppressors. Now it's the Romans. He's going to restore the glory of Israel and kick the Romans out. The Romans have been heavy in taxation. The Romans are not nice to people who live on the outskirts of their empire. And people are ready for a new David to come and sit upon the throne. What they want is kingdom now. They want the kingdom now. They want uh, everything to go uh, that will fulfill their wildest dreams. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but they wanted Rome out. They wanted their immediate problem to end, and it will end, but in what way? Let me ask you some provocative questions here. What will end racism for real? Is it is it if we all get together with a secular plan, that's going to do it? Or is it all standing equal around the cross and loving one another because God's put value upon every individual because his image is stamped upon every life? What's going to end wars? What will end poverty? What will end bondage? See, I think when Christ is made true king, things change. I think the Romans, they, had, they made this great promise. Uh, 
in their, their laws, they called it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that if you lived within the borders of the Roman Empire, you could expect relative peace. And if, if any disturbance arose, they would squish it with military power. And they caused the thriving of certain core languages like Greek and Latin, and you could travel f- kind of freely. And what they really wanted you to do was to look to Rome for all of your answers. Look to Caesar for all of your answers. They even called Caesar Savior and Lord. Now, uh, when the Christians came calling Jesus Lord, it was a political affrontery to Rome. And so it's a challenge. When Christ is made truth true king, things changed. It wasn't just this surface peace. It got to the heart of things. There was true love among Christians. There was a change that took place in terms of how people were valued. Do you think Rome cared if somebody starved to death? They didn't care. Christians fed the hungry. Do you think Roman, you think Rome cared when people decided, oh, it wasn't a boy baby, it was a girl baby, and we don't need another girl baby, and so they left it exposed to the elements? Do you think Rome cared at all? They didn't care. That was their way. But the church came in and said, those babies have value to God. And they began things like orphanages by taking babies in. So it changes the fabric of the world when Jesus is truly king. Third thing is that he is an honored king in verses 6 through 9. I'd like you to see how there's honor that's given to him, but it's not honor with understanding. Okay, It's, it's honor with a limited understanding. In verse 6, the disciples went and they did as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So Jesus was honored when he came, when he came to Jerusalem, he'd spent much of his ministry in the north, in the region of Galilee, some of it in the south, especially around festival times and along the, uh, the Jordan River. Um, but now he's coming in and there's a uh, popular following that's begun to grow up around him and he's honored. And some, some did so by throwing their cloaks on the ground. Kiki took a page right out of my notes here. When she said, it's like rolling out the red carpet when they threw their cloaks on the ground. N.T. Wright, uh, a British Bible scholar, he says that he told the story of uh, Sir Walter Raleigh throwing his coat down for the queen. He says sometimes people do things like that out of reverence for those who are in places of leadership. And it's, he said, uh, but Sir Walter Raleigh had many coats. Most of these people, they only had one. Think about that. You know, we might say, well, I can't do that because this is my best jacket. Uh, I couldn't do anything like that. They only have one. This is a symbolic way of laying down their entire life before Jesus. You're celebrating and valuing this person by doing so. You're doing that about as highly as you can. And it implies that if the need arose, you would give them anything else you had as well. Most of the crowd around Jesus, they didn't have a second cloak. And in a way, this is also uh, a a backhanded compliment to, or it's a compliment to Jesus, but it's also a way of saying the present leadership is really not doing enough. And this goes back to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, 
when this was done first for Jehu, there was a king in Israel named Jehu was anointed by Elisha. Elijah was intended to anoint him. Elisha is the one that fulfilled that prophecy. He, Eli- he uh, uh, sends somebody to anoint Jehu to be king. Elisha calls one of the prophets that's in his school of prophecy. And he said, I want you to go and anoint Jehu. I don't know if you remember this story. To be king in place of the present king Ahab. And so this man goes and he says, when you get there, take him aside privately and anoint him with oil to be the next king of Israel, and then open the door and run. Do you remember that? So he goes to the place. Jehu is a military leader in the north, and he's talking to his friends. And uh, he says, can I talk to you? I need to talk to you about something. And the prophet says this to Jehu, and he pulls him aside, and he gets him inside a room, and he anoints him, and he prophesies over him, says, the Lord is anointing you to be king instead of Ahab, and this is going to be Ahab's demise. This is going to be Jezebel's demise. And you're going to be a part of it. And then he opens the door and he takes off running. And one of the other, other prophets says, uh, or one of the other guys that was there says, what was that maniac doing? And Jehu says, I've just been anointed the next king of Israel. And the people take off their cloaks and they throw them down on the ground for Jehu to walk upon as a king. And so it's saying in one sense, you're the new king. And it's also saying in another sense, the old regime is out. The old is out. So there's a, an expectation here in the minds of these people as they honor Jesus as king. Who is it that's doing the throwing of the cloaks? In Luke, the subject of the action is the disciples first. I found this to be interesting. Matthew doesn't say this. Mark doesn't say this. John doesn't say this. But Luke says that it's the disciples who first throw their cloaks down. The ESV says, uh, says they, the disciples. And it demonstrates a powerful point. The disciples first declare Christ as king before the world can or will. What would happen if those who knew him best just do nothing about Jesus being king? You're here today, I think, because you believe Jesus to be king. And uh, I think we're probably bold enough to say it among ourselves. I think we're probably, some of us are bold enough to say it out there. Uh, hopefully, if you're leader of family, you're bold enough to say it within your home. But what happens if all of us step back and do nothing as his disciples? We don't lay down our cloak and make the way for Jesus. Who's going to do it? Well, after the disciples, then others followed, and they laid their cloaks down and followed suit and understood a little bit more of what this was about. It says others picked up palm branches. They laid them down, some waved them, and this is appropriate for the people to do. This had political implications too. The the long folk in the long folk memory of Jerusalem and its surrounding villages, there were still stories that were told of uh, a certain stage in Israel's history when a famous uh, Judas Maccabeus, who 200 years before had arrived in Jerusalem after conquering the pagan armies uh, that oppressed Israel, he finally kicked them out. They'd been under the Assyrians, the Babylonians, uh, particularly. The southern kingdom had been under the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and and now the Romans. But prior to this, uh, there was a man who was raised up, and he led them in victory, and he, he got the Gentile oppressors out of Jerusalem. And what they did is they they waved palm branches. You can read about that in Second Maccabees 10.7. Uh, and so what they did... Uh, 
I guess the question is, what did they mean? What, is, what did the people mean in waving palm branches by welcoming a king? The waving of palm branches expressed a pro-Israeli nationalism which expelled the wicked Gentile overlords. And so as they're waving these palm branches, in a way, what stands behind that is the hope that Jesus, when he gets into Jerusalem, is going to begin to establish his earthly kingdom and get rid of all of the difficulties in their lives, the high taxes, the Roman oppressor, all of these things. So they're looking for something immediate in terms of we want our lives to be better. They're not necessarily looking for, I want Jesus to take away my sin problem. They're not thinking in in terms of that. They're not thinking in terms of there's a devil out there that has victory over us. They're not even thinking in terms of death being their enemy. They're thinking in terms of what will benefit me now? And I tell you that there are still Christians that that's their most important concern is what will benefit me now. And what God calls upon us to look at here, and I think this story shows us what kind of leader Jesus is, is that he's concerned with the most important things, with the things that matter for eternity. And if we're going to establish a system by which to evaluate our priorities, the things that last the longest are the most important. Are you with me? Whatever lasts longest, that's most important. And so he prioritizes based on that. Does Jesus care that the Romans are taxing them and a lot of people are living in poverty? He cares about that. But he cares far more for the fact that they're dying and going to hell without him. And so he dies on the cross to save from sin. So they're thinking, kick the Gentiles out. And if we understand the expectations, we'll understand how radically different Jesus' vision is from those expectations. He would not be the military revolutionary. No, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. When Pilate pressed him, Will you, do you have an army and a following? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I'd raise up followers and we would come and fight a battle and get rid of you. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is different. It's not like the others with geopolitical boundaries. His kingdom is by the spirit and without borders. It's also not ethnocentric. His kingdom is proclaimed to all and all who are, all are welcomed into his kingdom. And what this means is that while many were trying to get the Gentiles out, Jesus' kingdom mission was to go and bring them in, bring them in under his rule. And we have been, uh, we have been brought in. And what is the Great Commission but going into all the world and teaching them to observe everything that he's commanded? In other words, it's taking the reign of Christ to the ends of the world and saying, will you live under the reign of Christ. That's what we're called to do in making disciples, is bringing everyone, every tongue and tribe and nation under his authority. That's what we're called to do. And I'm convinced today that we're living proof of that and that it's worked. Um, We have little in common with the Judaism of Jesus' day. We really do. But here, uh, here we are, a world apart in language, in culture, millennia. We are what the Bible would call the distant shores. Though those prophets had no idea how distant that would be. I find it thrilling that the unlikely has worked and it continues to work anywhere people acknowledge him as king. Are you with me on that? I don't know if that uh, excites you the way that it does me, but you can't get much farther from Jerusalem than we are right here. And the gospel has arrived 
The gospel is here. The gospel is making deep roots in the lives in Alaska. This is as distant of shores as you find. The gospel has gone around the world and transformed lives. This is what our lowly king has brought about. Transformation, it excites me. Do you know, uh, this isn't the only time people wave palm branches. It tells us in Revelation chapter 7, Verse 9, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, (laughs) standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, so listen to this. When Jesus first came, there were people crying out, Hosanna, which means save us now. Okay? They didn't have a full understanding of what that meant. That, that meant to them, get the Romans out, bring glory back to Israel. Okay? Now we fast forward into, the, into eternity, and we see a group of people, not just Israeli, but Jew and Gentile alike gathered in as one new people under Christ that are saying, Salvation belongs to our God. Not just, God, will you save us now? They're saying salvation has belonged to our God because of what Christ is. And to the Lamb. See, the people on the, the day of uh, the triumphal entry, they didn't understand Jesus came to be a Lamb. After the resurrection and when we're in heaven, when we declare his praise, we're going to remember the most significant thing is that the Lamb overcame. The Lamb. There's not a more meek animal than a Lamb. My friend Samuel in middle school, his parents were pastors, and I don't know why they did this, but they bought a lamb. And they had it chained up in their backyard somewhere, like almost like a dog where it was chained to a stake where it couldn't get outside the yard and get hit or something by a car. But uh, his mom said, you have to be careful out there because if you go around the house too quickly and you startle it, it could have a heart attack and die. That's how meek sheep are. You can literally scare them to death. Jesus' figure is that he's a lamb, not because he's scared, but because of the gentle way in which he overcame all of the world. He's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He's the lamb that overcomes uh, in the book of Revelation. And so we live our lives between these two parades, the triumphal entry and that, that heavenly host waving their palm branches in triumph. And the first one... It was done in faith by those who had no knowledge of what would follow. The second one will be done with full knowledge of what Christ's triumph really means. The term Son of David, Hosanna to the Son of David, comes up. This is is the thing that really sets the religious leaders off. You find out in verse 15. It says there, um, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Indignant means that they're angry because they feel like these people are doing something wrong. And uh, in one of the Gospels, it says, they tell Jesus, tell them to stop. And he says, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. So there's this title, son of David, thrown out there. And what does that mean? This is a messianic title, and it means the descendant of David. It includes a whole bunch of prophecies, which include him sitting on a throne and him ruling forever. And uh, all of the 
All of the hopes of the people should be placed upon him, though they don't know exactly why. And so there was the declaration, he's the son of David. And they're right about that, even though they're wrong about how he's going to come about conquering. They're right about the fact that he's the son of David. And it tells us that when Jesus came into the city, the whole city in verse 10 was stirred, was stirred. The definition of that is to cause something to be in a state of commotion as a result of this striking event. Um, and it can, be, it can be translated to stir up, to cause an uproar, to cause great anxiety even. If it's, and then it's a, a metaphor for shake or shaken is the metaphor here. In fact, we get our word seismic from this word, uh, sayo or sayo. So the whole city is kind of stirred up. They're in turmoil because of this. Some translations say they're in an uproar. The Revised English Bible, they're wild with excitement. See, 30 years earlier, uh, some 30 years earlier, when the Magi came looking for the king of the Jews, they came to Herod, and they asked him, where can we find him? We've seen his star in the east. We want to go worship him. And Herod pulls in whatever Bible scholars he knows, and they tell him, you know, it's Bethlehem. And it tells us that when Herod heard this about this king, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him, disturbed. So once again, these three decades later, they're stirred up again at the thought of a new king. A new king comes on the scene. It shakes things up. It bothers the status quo. But it excites those who are looking for the coming of God. And so they're excited that there's a new king. He was honored, but not he wasn't fully understood. How much more should we honor him since we understand more clearly what his mission was? Finally, he's a holy king. Verses 12 and 13, there's a messianic part to play here. It tells us in verse 12 and 13, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the, uh, and the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've, you've been making it a den of thieves. So Jesus comes in, and this is not accidental, like he just sees something happening and he gets mad about it, and he's like, we got to get this stuff out of here. This is something that was prophesied. This is another step that demonstrates he is the one that was expected. In Zechariah 14, verse 21, ESV says it this way, and every uh, pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them. And boil the meat and and the, of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor, not traitor, traitor, one who trades, merchant, in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The actual word that's used there is Canaanite, but this word's often used by the prophets to speak of merchants. Okay, so it's uh, this is a prophecy from Zechariah saying, when the when the Messiah comes, when the Lord comes to His people. There no longer will be the merchant in the house of the Lord. He's going to purify the house of the Lord. And this shows us that he's not just a political kind of leader. He's a religious leader. And he cares about the state of the worship of God's people. So the last verse in Zechariah says, No longer will it be the merchant in the house of the Lord in that day. His temple action was a claim to royal status 
this was true of the Maccabeans too. And, and uh, you find this, that they cleansed the citadel and the temple. That's the city inside the walls. And in chapter 10 of, of Second Maccabees, verse 7, they purged the sanctuary and they worshipped waving palm fronds. It's interesting, isn't it? So he's a holy, he's a holy king. We've seen a lot of unholy kings in Scripture. You kind of watch this roller coaster cycle of the kings, and one of the prophecies was uh, when the people demanded of Samuel, we want a king, and God said, I'll give you a king if that's what you want, but they will be trouble for you because as the king went, so went the nation. If the king fell and he led the people into idolatry, they went into idolatry. Manasseh was a wicked king. He got the people to throw their babies into a furnace called Moloch as an act of worship to a wicked God. So, as the king goes, so now we have a holy king. What do you think that means for God's people? It ought to mean holy people as a response to following a holy king. This is what our Messiah is like. I think it was missed by many in that day. They were caught up, some were caught up in the enthusiasm. Others were um, standing in opposition to Jesus coming. Some were committed and loyal, but they didn't exactly know what it meant. Even the disciples say when Jesus is ascending, he says, okay, what? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I thought there was going to be more to this. Jesus says, that's not for you to know. In other words, not your concern. You go and preach the gospel, which I would suggest to you is building the kingdom and establishing the kingdom. God is not satisfied with having a kingdom within the borders of Israel. He wants the whole world back. Come on, not true? That's what evangelism's about, is bringing the gospel, bringing every soul and heart under the reign of Christ, where everyone is saying yes to him, where everybody is saying, you are my Lord, not just, I'm a Christian, I go to church. No, you are my king. That's what being a Christian is about. I don't know how people would have known any better during that day. They'd never been shown the extent of God's saving work. And God's vision took all the themes of rescue, forgiveness, the glory that was promised, avenging of the Israelites, but he made them more than they could have ever imagined, and he always does that. And God's way took a surprising turn. Instead of fighting on the political plane, he conquered spiritually in a way that looked to many like defeat. We talked about this last Wednesday in Bible study about how he triumphed over the enemies of God on the cross. He made a spectacle of them. Now, the interesting thing is the cross looks like defeat for the one hanging on it. But in Jesus' case, he was actually conquering the world by being on the cross. It's such an interesting irony, the way that God, in his wisdom, chose to do things. And he still does things where he conquers through surprising ways. Something that may look like a setback for us may actually be his advance. It might. Say, I don't know how he's getting glory through this in my life, but it might be God advancing through all of that. God's way took a surprising turn. It looked like defeat, but in fact defeated all the real and lasting foe. And it's our spiritual foes that are lasting foes. Every human villain or oppressor will one day die. But the foes of death and demons and sin... They would have tyrannized us forever if Jesus hadn't done things his way. Had Jesus' vision been the same as that 
which the people wanted, we would not have been a part of the Israel of God today. The gospel would not have spread over the entire earth, and we're a sign that the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. Alaska is known as the last frontier. To this distant place, the gospel has reached, and it's reached Alaska from the east and the west. And This says God can be honored even by incomplete praise. The praise wasn't complete, but they honored him anyway. With the other expectations of Messiah is how Jesus, he is so much better than what anyone expected. If Jesus fulfilled what the people expected rather than the vision he alone saw, then they would have had, uh, they would have had maybe world domination but been doomed at death. They might have seen the greatness of God. The greatness of God might have been known to Israel, but not to the world because Israel in its natural state was not evangelistic. The nation of Israel may have lived for the glory of God, but the world stage would not have been transformed. The political oppressor would have been thrown down, but the spiritual oppressor would have remained. The way of victory would have remained um, through might rather than sacrificial love if Jesus hadn't done what he had done. And the place of Gentiles in the economy of God would have always been secondary. And I'm here to say to you that Gentile Christians are not secondary Christians. Are you with me? Not. The Bible says that there's no longer Jew or Gentile. We're all one in Christ, and we're grafted in as one new people of God. Ephesians say those categories are not significant in terms of status with God anymore. It's all through Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. If you doubt what I'm saying, read it. And read it again because it's there. There's now no longer Jew and Gentile. There's one new creation in Christ. That's you and me. It doesn't matter where we come from or what our background is. You might have grown up in a Christian home or you might not have. That doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you're, a, you're part of the new creation. You're part of the new people of God that's established through Christ. And that, to me, is exciting. What Jesus did was greater than what was expected. The problem is not that we're setting our eyes too high for him to accomplish, but too low. And people still repeat that same mistake by thinking the kingdom can be saved by might and effort rather than by trusting God for his kingdom. And we're guilty of the same thing. A Messiah of momentary blessings is what many people are after. And we're short-sighted. He does momentary blessings. But I'm suggesting to you there's a greater point. We would like a few blessings. We'd like good health and enough money to get by and some left over for retirement and family and a few friends. We don't want to be interfered with. We don't want to lose anyone important to us. We want safety. And our problem isn't that our desires are too big, but they're too small, too short-sighted. The purpose of Jesus coming was not to add to our lives, but to give us a new life. Not to get rid of the oppressor, but to end all oppression. Not to make us happy, but to make us whole. And it took a cross to do that. And those kinds of things grow up in the middle of difficulty right now because eternal life exists alongside the life that we now know. He's different from every other leader. And he leads us in the midst of years, if you know what I mean. Like today, you probably got some things that you're thinking about that maybe are concerns or worries. God's glorified even through that. Do you know that? That he's got a bigger purpose. Yeah, we concern ourselves with those things, but don't let those concerns choke out a love for God 
and a value for the things of God that surpass all of them. Because he's different from every, every other kind of lead, leader. Unlike the people of Jesus' day, we, ex- we, we know better. We know what he was about. So what should we do about it? First, let's praise him as king. He's the one who has secured our salvation. He'll lead us to the blessings of Israel. In him, we'll have security, peace, life, relationship, forgiveness, significance, and purpose. All that we need and more. This will require, require us to think differently than we do about most of life in our society. In other words, you can't necessarily follow Jesus and follow the American dream. You can't serve two masters. You, you understand what I mean? That if you follow Jesus, he'll make the American dream uncomfortable because it won't satisfy us. What good is all of that if we're just going to die and it's all going to be lost to us? But we can live for a kingdom that's far better. God will bless you in the now. He will. I think he'll take care of us. But it's not the point is what I'm trying to say. We ought to praise him as king and follow him as king and have different expectations. If we praise him as king, we should also follow him as king. Where were these people when it was time for the cross? Even his disciples, where were they? He said to them, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. And Luke says, daily, and follow me. Second, we should praise him in faith. To trust God even when we don't understand what he's doing. Have you ever wondered what God's about? See, what he has in mind is far better than what we have in mind for ourselves. And this means praising him through misunderstandings. And this will take the kind of maturity to distinguish between what we want and what we need. One of the little girls in our church, uh, has she? her mom was telling me that she, uh, anytime she wants something, she says, I need that. I need that. And it's cute. But they're learning. She's saying, we've got to teach the difference between want and need. And I think that's a lesson we always are learning. What is the difference between what we want and what we truly need? And so it takes a kind of maturity to do this. This will also mean praising him in a way we don't uh, praise any other thing. Herod's not going to deliver for these people. The religious leaders won't deliver. Rome isn't going to deliver on what they really need. No other Messiah pretender is going to deliver. It's only going to be Jesus. And so we have to abandon rival kings. And the beautiful thing is Jesus doesn't look like the rivals. He's far different than that. Why don't we stand today? Thanks for your attention. We're here today to declare that Jesus is king, and he's still king. And is he king of your life, or have we just made it a matter of words? I think today God would like to see a kind of trust grow in our hearts that will continue with Jesus through the bizarre twists and turns of life. I think God wants to see that kind of trust. He would He would have liked to have seen that from these people. He definitely wants to see that from us. Can you trust him when you don't know what's happening? When it doesn't turn out like we expected, would you be willing to say today, God, I'm, I want to trust you more? Would you be willing to say today, I believe, help my unbelief? Second, 
I think God wants to see the kind of maturity which can discern his purposes from the cares of this world and our expectations. Are you willing to say, God, change my mind to agree with your kind of, your kind of thinking about what's important? The people standing in line, waving their palm branches, laying down their cloaks, they may have had certain things in mind they wanted God to do for them. But what God was going to do for them is far better. And so I'm asking us, now that we're on the other side of the cross, can we live in light of that? Can we lay down our expectations of kind of short-sighted expectations of God and say, God, I really I want what you are offering to me, all of it. Not, not being stingy, but saying, God, if you've offered it, that's what I want for my life. And if it's something you don't want for my life, I don't want that. Would you be willing to say, God, change my mind to agree with your way of thinking? Then third, I think God wants us to honor Jesus today by acknowledging what he's done for us. We could start with praising him for our salvation. So would you be willing to praise Jesus with me today? These, these altars are open. We're going to lead in some worship songs. It's going to be really informal. It'll be like this. Let's worship the Lord. And if you need to pray one of these prayers, or if you're recognizing the Spirit speaking to you about something today, respond to him. You can do that there. You can do that here. But let's respond to the Lord today. This uh, triumphal entry is going to lead to a week of conflict. He's going to be in conflict with the religious leaders, and it's going to end in his death. But it ends even better than that. He comes, he raises to life on the third day. And we can rejoice in that. He's that kind of leader. He's better than we would have ever expected. Let's worship the Lord today. If you want to respond, if you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, would you say, Tim, be merciful to me. I've taken my life and I've used it in my way. And now, Lord, I'm recognizing I need to give it to you. Would you forgive me of how I've lived before and take this life and use it to please you and for your kingdom's sake? A prayer like that will change everything for you. beautiful Savior we have. And I think uh, probably one way to describe evangelism is the loving conquest of souls as God longs and desires to bring his reign into the heart of every person. And so you probably know somebody who's not yet trusting the Lord. I'd like to encourage you to think about it is that when a soul is one, the kingdom is expanded. And so think about that. But, but also think about our responsibility to respond correctly to the king to let him have his way in our lives. So, Lord, we, we want to commit our lives to you, and uh, we ask that you would be honored in how we live. You're a holy king, and we want to reflect that, Lord. And you're a God who knows what's most important. And so, God, I pray that you would help us as your people to have our eyes on the, uh, the prize, the proper priorities and the destination, the goal for which you've called us. So we pray, Lord, that you live, you help us to live with an eternal perspective and not just the temporary, momentary needs being um, so overwhelming in our lives that we, we can't focus on you. And so we want to trust you with all that we are and follow you with everything we have, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.
this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.